Well, good morning, Veritas. Uh, we're going to continue our study of Genesis today. But before we do that, I want us to think about something. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're a human being, a living and breathing human being, if you are to rightly understand yourself and to rightly understand the world around you, there's three questions that you have to answer correctly. How did we get here? What went wrong? And how do we fix it? And you might even throw in a fourth there, why are we here? That question, what went wrong? That's, that's the one we'll, we'll be addressing today. Why so much suffering in the world? You know, why the deadly diseases? Why loved ones dying so young and so tragically? Why destruction and natural disasters? Why so much evil in our world? Uh, hatred between human beings made in the image of God. Human trafficking, a senseless murder. Why, why is every living thing in the world moving toward death? Well, the way that Christians are increasingly trying to answer that question of what went wrong is outside of the Bible, outside of God's word. And a recent study bears this to be true. 65% of professing evangelical Christians believe that people are born innocent. Okay, 57% that most people are good by nature. Now here's the alarming thing about that. If you believe that people are born innocent and you believe that most people are good by nature, you get the diagnosis of the problem wrong. And if you get the diagnosis wrong, you're never going to get to the right solution. So to say that sin is the biggest problem in our world, I don't think would be most faithful to Genesis 3. Sin isn't the biggest problem in the world. The biggest problem in the world is that I am a sinner and you are a sinner. The biggest problem in the world is that I am a sinner and you are a sinner. Because as we'll see from Genesis 3, there's a massive difference between saying there's sin in the world and I am a sinner in desperate need of God's mercy and forgiveness. You guys all in a cheerful mood this morning now? Let's open to Genesis 3. We're going to kind of look at this part of God's story in three different scenes. Okay? We'll break it down to three different scenes. Scene 1 is the temptation, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of, from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for her food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for attaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what went wrong? Well, new characters introduced to the story here. Satan inhabits the serpent, who's part of creation. Right? It's an animal created by God that's going to be important later. And through his cunningness, or you might say craftiness, the serpent senses a certain vulnerability in the woman rather than approaching the man. And notice his opening statement. It's sort of meant to convey shock and surprise. Like, no, 
No. Would God really say, are you serious? That's what God said? No way. I can't believe he would be that mean to you. It's a gross exaggeration of God's prohibition. Just a chapter earlier in verse 17 where God said, there's just one tree. And we learned last week, it's not even the most prominent tree. Just one tree. Stay away from that one. Don't eat the fruit. Everything else is yours. The lavish generosity of God is on display. But the serpent is trying to portray God in a particular way. God's restrictive. He's not gracious. God's selfish. He's not generous. Right? You might even say he's spiteful. He's mean. Not a good God. And notice his distortion of God's words. Did God say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? From any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. He just said there was one tree you can't eat from. And the question is sort of meant to probe Eve's understanding of God's word. And it really gives Eve an opportunity to defend God right here. Did God say this? She could step in and defend God. But what does she do? She then goes and distorts God's word. She exaggerates the prohibition. She minimizes her privileges. Do not eat becomes do not touch. She minimizes the penalty. We see this best in the original language in Hebrew. In chapter 2, verse 17, God says, you will surely die if you eat the fruit. A literal translation of Eve's statement is, death's a possibility. It's a possibility. Not a sure thing, but it's a possibility. And the man is just responsible as the woman. This whole dialogue in 1 through 5 from Satan to the woman, it's in the plural. He's addressing them both. The command was given to the man. Remember, the woman wasn't created yet in chapter 2, verse 17. He should have taught Eve God's word. At the very least, he should have stepped in right here when the serpent approached her and protected her. But in his passivity, he fails on both accounts. And what's the serpent's response? It's a direct attack on God. God, you're a liar. Right? You're not going to die. And notice the heart of the serpent's temptation. You're going to be like God. Hey, guys, God's holding out. What it means to really be alive, to really experience abundant life, follow me. I'll show you what that is. God doesn't know what that is. And you just want to kind of step in here and say, hey, Eve, you're already like God. You're already like God. Remember chapter one? You're made in the image of the living God. In the most beautiful, the most pure, the most whole God-honoring way, you're like God. Why would you want something else? And then comes the transgression. Eve listens to the creature instead of the creator. Adam obeys his wife instead of God. And desire takes over. That word desirable. It has the the sense of a a really kind of intense, out-of-control, selfish desire. So what happens? Well, their eyes are opened. They have a new awareness of good and evil. You can think about it this way. Previously, they were like a healthy person who really had no concern for a deadly disease. But now, not only are they not like the physician, they don't have his perspective, her perspective, they have the perspective of a person who has just been diagnosed with a deadly disease. And there's an extreme concern in their souls. They have a sense of guilt and shame. Their innocence is lost. And they're going to experience far more than physical death. Right? Their hearts don't stop beating here right? when they eat of the fruit. 
But the death of their identity, the death of their purpose, the death of their relationships, as we'll see, is going to be permanent unless somebody steps in to intervene here. But it's important at this point to kind of step back and understand what the essence of sin is. What was it that lured them in? Right? What was so appealing about what Satan offered them? Well, when I was a kid, we had a garden in our backyard, huge garden, took up a lot of our backyard with tons of, of food, different vegetables in it and things. The problem was that we had all kinds of animals that would either destroy it or eat it. We had little ones like squirrels and rabbits that were a menace. We had even raccoons, coyotes, uh, deer. And so my dad set out traps, right? Don't worry, he didn't catch any deer, okay? No bambies were harmed in the production of this sermon. Um, but... Anybody knows that when you're trying to catch an animal, you've got to have the proper bait, right? Something to lure them in. And for some reason, it was so often peanut butter, right? So, and sometimes my dad would put out poison covered in peanut butter. And the animals would see that, and it looked so good, so appealing on the outside. And of course, they would go for it, walk into the trap, and the result was death. And that's a lot like how sin works in our lives. The temptation is the bait. Right? It looks so appealing, but it's going to result in death if we indulge in it. It's kind of like chocolate-covered rat poison. looks good on the outside. Inside, it's deadly. But there's a big difference. The way that Bible, the Bible portrays how sin works in our lives, it's not that there's an, a trap set and then we walk into it. The way the Bible portrays it is that we set the trap and we walk into our own trap. The temptation is the bait, our selfish desires are the trap, and when we go after those selfish desires, we walk right into the trap. So over and over again, Veritas, we're going to be faced with a decision, same one that Adam and Eve were faced with, maybe daily. Does God know what's best for me, or do I know what's best for me? Right? Does God know what's best for me, or do I know what's best for me? And when we choose the latter, we're choosing to not take God at his word. We ask the question, what went wrong? And the answer is that Adam and Eve did not take God at his word. And we do the same thing today. We have to take God at his word. Let's look at scene two. The confrontation, verses 8 through 13. I'm actually going to back up to verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened... And they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Well, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he, that's God, asked, Well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, Well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So we're going to narrow in on two questions here. How does God respond to us when we sin? And how are we not to respond to God when we sin? So the first thing Adam and Eve do is they hide from each other. right? They sew fig leaves together, cover up their nakedness, and then they hide from God. And this is sort of a natural impulse when we sin. Right? Guilt and shame are now for the first time a part of Adam and Eve's lives. The hiding from God is also an implicit admission of their sin. 
right? So number one, how not to respond to God when we sin. Hide from God rather than seek God. Hide from God rather than seek God. So what's God's response? Well, he calls out to the man. He directly confronts only Adam at this point because Adam is the leader of the family and ultimate responsibility rests with the leader. Now, what's the tone of God's question here? How do you hear that in your mind and in your heart? You know, is it, where are you? Or is it, where are you? How you hear that determines how you understand how God responds to us when we sin. This is a sign of grace. God is trying to draw the man and the woman out, not cast them off. But what's Adam's response? He says, well, I was afraid. We know it wasn't a good fear because it drove him away from God and not toward God. So number two, how are we not to respond to God when we sin? Be consumed with fear rather than assume that God is full of grace and mercy. Be consumed with fear rather than assume that God is full of grace and mercy. So God asks Adam two more questions. And what's the point of God asking these questions? Not like he doesn't know the answer. Well, the point is to provoke a confession out of Adam and Eve so he can forgive them. It's not to bring down condemnation. He's trying to draw them in once again. We said earlier that our impulse is to hide from God when we sin. But we see from these verses, and guys, this is the darkest moment of human history, right? But even in the midst of this moment, God's impulse is to seek us when we sin. Fear continues to take over in the heart of Adam and Eve. So what do they do? They point the finger, right? They shift the blame. Adam blames the woman and God, right? Well, you gave her to me. Eve blames the serpent, and we see the third reason, or the third way that we're not to respond to God when we sin. Transfer the blame rather than own your sin. Transfer the blame rather than own your sin. This is so easy for us, right? We do it all the time. I mean, for me, one of the struggles is bitterness, right? Well, if they wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't be so bitter toward them, you know? Well, if my wife would have done this, I wouldn't be angry, right? Somebody else's fault. What does it mean to own your sin? Well, it means to take responsibility for it and rule over it. In the very next chapter, God is going to tell Cain, sin is sort of creeping at your door, but you need to rule over it. You know, when I was a football coach for 12 years, and we saw this transfer of blame all the time as coaches, right? A play would get busted, the player would run to the sideline. The coach would want an explanation, right? Well, if they would have communicated better, I would have had my guy, right? Or, well, if the sun wasn't in my eyes, I would have had the catch. Or, well, if, if he would have done that, I wouldn't have done this. Over and over again. And one of the things I learned from that that I think applies to us is that over and over again, the one who accepts total responsibility for their failure was the one most committed to the solution. Okay, the one most committed to taking responsibility for their failure was most committed to the solution. Now, what was the solution for those players? Well, watch more film, master a skill, right? Communicate better. 
That's the biggest difference between that illustration and us. For us, the solution is a person. It's Jesus Christ. So to, to speak of owning our sin by ruling over it, it doesn't imply that we're to try harder to be a better person, right? It means that the one who accepts total responsibility is most committed to running to Jesus after they sin. Not hiding. To naming your sin. Not saying, I messed up. Not saying I made a mistake. Okay, I'm getting sick of hearing that. You rebelled against the living God. I rebel against the living God. It's a sin. And then humbly receiving his forgiveness. That, that is what it means to be committed to the solution. Now the specific context here of Adam and Eve is marriage. So, so let's speak into this. My wife and I have the, the privilege of walking through marriage with a lot of different couples. And one of the things I love about it is I think a lot of times we benefit probably more than the couple we're mentoring, right? It's so good for our marriage. It, the sad thing is that some of these marriages are, are struggling. And we were meeting with this one couple, and, and the situation just wasn't looking good. Divorce was thrown out as an option. And we had got done meeting in our living room one night, and the couple went home, and, and Carrie and I, my wife, were just discouraged. Right? Where is this marriage going to go? How's it going to end up? And we met with the couple. Um, about three weeks later, and I'd kind of been talking to the guy, my wife had kind of been talking to the woman, but we didn't know where it was going to go. And so they sit down on our couch, and kind of hesitantly we ask, how's it going? Big smiles on their face. It's going great. Really? What's changed in the last three weeks? This was what the wife said. Well, we just decided to focus on our own individual relationships with Jesus Christ. And I am not kidding you, Veritas. Almost word for word, this is what the husband and the wife articulated. I realized I had to focus on my sin and not my spouse's. Now, I'm not saying that's the problem in every marriage that's having trouble. But it's the problem in a lot. We have to take responsibility for our sin. And men, take the lead. In any given conflict, be the first to admit you're wrong and take responsibility for your sin. Okay, let's move on to the, the final scene, the consequences, starting in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust." So in this scene, we're going to narrow in on that question, how does God deal with our sin? And we'll see that a new order sort of enters into creation. We call it disorder, right? So God addresses the serpent first. He says, the serpent is cursed. Notice that God does not curse Adam and Eve. He curses the ground. He curses the serpent. He says, well, you're going to move on your belly and eat dust. What does he mean there? Those are symbols of humiliation and defeat, ultimate defeat of Satan, as we'll see here. He also says, well, human beings in Satan, you're going to be brutal enemies of each other. But there's going to be a resolution. 
that comes to that conflict. And we see that in verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. I will put hostility, remember he's addressing the serpent here. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, that's her offspring, will strike the serpent's head, and you, serpent, will strike his heel. This is called the protoevangelium. Okay? Proto, you can think prototype, like first, and then evangelium, good news or gospel. This is the first gospel presentation in all the Bible, right here in verse 15. So what's happening here? was talking to the serpent, remember. So who's the serpent's offspring? Who's Satan's offspring? Well, it's wicked people that oppose Jesus, right? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John 8, and he says, you are of the father of the devil, your father, right? Eve's offspring, we learn from the genealogy in Luke 3, is Jesus. So Satan is going to inflict a non-mortal wound to Jesus in the crucifixion. But Jesus is going to inflict a fatal blow, right? A blow to the head is often fatal to Satan with the resurrection. It's prophesying the ultimate defeat of Satan here. Three, three chapters into the Bible. So God addresses the woman and the man next. And their consequences are going to strike right at the heart of their God-ordained design and roles. Okay, for the woman, what's most unique about a woman? I can't bear children, I can tell you that much, Right? Her role as a wife and mother, right? God says your pain is going to be increased in bearing children and being fruitful and multiplying. For the man, it's his role as provider for the family. This, this endeavor is going to be painful. Now understand, work is not the consequence. Work is good. But what, what's God saying here through Moses? He's saying, well, work is going to be difficult. There's going to be a lot of frustration that comes along with it. A lot of failure, right? Creation is even going to fight back. It's going to resist until it actually swallows you up, right? When you physically die, you're going to return to dust. And then for both, in the second half of verse 16, he says, well, there's going to be a distortion of your roles in marriage. There's going to be this struggle for power in the marriage relationship. For the woman, her trusting partnership is going to look like manipulation, grabbing for control. For the man loving leadership, it's going to tend toward harsh domination. And our roles is to recover our pre-fall roles in marriage. So for the man, that means loving leadership. Leadership means taking the initiative, setting the spiritual tone for your family. What does discipleship look like in your family? Men, take the lead. Guard Sunday mornings for your family. Take the lead in, in how you practice hospitality how you spend money, how you spend your time. Work hard to provide for your family. And then physically and spiritually protect your family. For the woman, her role is the trusting partner. I asked my wife, I said, Carrie, what would you say to women here? And she said, well, it's certainly about following the husband's lead with trust. But make sure that women know that this isn't passive. Everything I just described for the husband, the woman is actively engaged in. Everything. Okay? This is not a passive role for women. Ultimate responsibility rests with the man. That's what leadership is, not total responsibility. It's not a solo job. But she said also, make sure you tell wives to encourage their husbands in little and big ways. 
Because it's hard to lead a lot of times. Leadership is a hard thing. And then last she said, tell wives to pray for their husband's leadership and, and most of all to pray for their husband's relationship with God. It almost brings tears to my eyes that every single day at 10 o'clock, my wife's phone, her alarm goes off. And that's a signal to pray for my relationship with the Lord. Because your leadership is going to be a direct result of your relationship with Jesus Christ. If one is thriving, the other is probably thriving as well. So we can see that sin has resulted in disorder and brokenness in relationships. Relationship with the serpent, right? There's going to be enmity, right? Hatred between us, with creation, with each other. And sadly, at the end of this passage, we see brokenness with God himself. But as we've seen throughout this passage, all hope is not lost. So starting at verse 20, let's finish this last passage. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The creation mandate is not retracted. It's still there. He drove the man out and stationed the cherry beam and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see the first sign of hope here from Adam and Eve. He names his wife Eve, which means mother of all the living. It's a sign that Adam believes God that death is not going to have the last say. The words he spoke in verse 15 are going to come true. God's going to step in. He's going to restore all that was lost at the fall. And then God shows, once again, his grace comes through. He shows this tender care for the couple as he clothes them. But as we have seen, sin always has consequences. And one of those consequences is separation from God. Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden. Right? They don't leave willingly. They're kind of exiled by God. And not only did they not gain what they had hoped for when the serpent was tempting them, but they lost everything they had. So we learned this about sin. I think it's important for us. With sin, you have everything to lose and nothing to gain. That's ultimately, if, if sin were to ever tell the truth, I mean, sin's a deceiver, a lie, but if sin were to ever tell the truth, sin would say, hey, follow me, you'll gain nothing and you'll lose everything. But another consequence that's implicit here that applies to all of us, the New Testament says that Adam represents the entire human race. So Adam gave us two gifts, right? Two, two sweet gifts from Adam here at the fall. We get inherited guilt from Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, God thought of all of us as having sinned. We enter this world not innocent, but sinners. And we also inherit a corrupted nature. Our bodies, our minds, our souls, our wills, they're all affected by sin. Outside of God, we can't do any good. And you might say, man, this seems a little harsh, God. Why, why the consequences? God has to protect that which he loves most. He has to protect that which he loves most. I mean, who wouldn't, right? One of the things my, my family and I love doing on our Sabbaths is we, we go on long walks. One of our favorite places is Kent Park. We pick a new trail kind of every Saturday and go. our kids call them adventures, you know. Can you imagine if we're on one of those walks and a predator 
right? A man jumps out of the bushes and attacks my wife and kids. What's the most loving thing to do in that situation? I'm going to beat him up, okay? <laughs> that man is threatening that which I love most. And sin threatens us, that which God loves most. So yes, God is going to deal in some pretty extreme ways with sin. He kicked us out of the garden. He closed off our path to him, right? It's guarded by the angels and the swords. But he never totally abandons us. Because where God clothed off our path to him, we look at Jesus on the cross, and he's hanging on the cross. He breathes his last. He yields his spirit up to God. And what does Matthew say? The curtain in the temple, the thing that symbolized separation between us and God, it was torn in two from top to bottom. The pathway to God had been opened through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that creation, and let's face it, the crowning piece of creation, us, right? That we're set free from this enslavement to death. That's worth celebrating, Veritas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that even in our, our seemingly most hopeless moment, uh, seemingly the darkest moment of human history, uh, your grace was always there. You, you never totally abandoned us. And I just pray that that's the God that we see amidst our sin. Not a harsh, domineering, vengeful, mean, angry God. Your anger takes provocation. Your mercy does not. Your mercy is just waiting to be poured out on us. Give us the humility to not hide, but to seek you amidst our sin. Give us the humility, Lord, to not transfer the blame, but just to, to own our sin. Amidst the shame and the guilt, the consequences, help us to own our sin and then humbly receive your forgiveness, Lord. As you taught us in the Lord's Prayer, I, I pray that you would lead us away from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one, Lord. And help us to cling to you. I love that, that song that we sang. We can hide. Yeah, we can hide if we hide in you. Help us to hide in you, Lord God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.